open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses in just a moment. That's where our sermon will come from. That's our text for today. Again, Luke 5, beginning in verse 1. If you can do two things at once, I'm going to ask you also to place a finger in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. I'm going to call your attention in just a moment to verse 30 and verse 47 there. So Luke 5 is our text uh, in what is, for me, uh, going to be a bit of a, a longer introduction today because I want to bring several streams of thought into what you might call the, the reservoir of this particular sermon. As we work through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse over these next months and probably even beyond this year. I'm going to ask you to wrestle and to struggle with what I think is the most important, uh, the most essential, the most profound issue that I found myself struggling with from my moment of conversion at 15 years old. And at some level, both as a pastor proclaiming the truth and seeking to rightly divide for you to set the table before you with the truth and at the same, and at the same time, in a parallel way, live out that truth as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to look and you're going to have to think of some things, about some things that I think is essential. I think in the average, in the typical evangelical church, whether they are Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or whatever, Independents, Charismatics, this is little thought of. For whatever reason, and I think I kind of know why. God brought these issues to bear upon my life at a very, very early age. These issues were introduced to what was then Centercrest Baptist Church, now North Clay Baptist Church, almost to the day 16 years ago. As some very vibrant, and young leaders of what was then Centercrest Baptist Church, led by a distinguished and fine gentleman by the name of Don Sims. Well, I use that very loosely. But a good friend of mine appeared in the sanctuary of Philadelphia Baptist Church to hear a young buck of a preacher who was very rough around the edges and very new to this whole deal. And they showed up, and the text that I chose for that Sunday, Jeff Dalton, was the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 30. And I introduced them to an issue that comes to the forefront fairly frequently and tends to get swept back right under the rug. 
One of the things that I ask those vivacious young people that came to hear that young buck preach, and then I ask the deacons, and then I've asked the church on a number of occasions to do, imagine me asking you to do anything, was to read a book that has been more foundational to the way I think than any other book except the Bible itself. A book written by a man by the name of John MacArthur that you've heard thrown about very frequently called The Gospel According to Jesus. I also ask that they read a book or buy a book and use it as a reference, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which we refer to quite often. In that book by John MacArthur, The Gospel According to Jesus, he unpacks a controversy. Now, this book was written either the late 80s or early 90s, so it's been around a while now. But he zeroed in on the very issue that sent me on a path of struggle for 20 years. And that I could not reconcile what I saw in every church with which I was familiar and what I began to see as a person who was newly born again, trying to pick up my Bible and read it and make sense of all of the inconsistencies that I was hearing over the first 20 years of my life from the pulpit. I could not make sense because one Sunday they seemed to say some, one thing and the next Sunday they seemed to say another. And, of course, by the third Sunday, we'd ran that preacher off and we were looking for another preacher. As I told you, nine preachers in the course of 20 years from the time I was five years old till I was 20 years old. Don't y'all wish y'all were so blessed. But the issue that we always want to keep before us is the issue of making disciples. Many times we will say, we want to make more and better disciples. That's exactly what Jesus Christ has called his church to do. More disciples, better disciples, maturing disciples, growing in grace. We want you to understand the free offer of God's salvation given in the gospel of Jesus Christ through and by His grace. And we want you to understand that that is a call to discipleship. That is a call to follow the one who died on the cross for our sins. It is normative in the church. And in fact, in the midst of my struggle, uh, we ate dinner one night. Uh, long before I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, long before um, I even gave any thought to going crazy and becoming a pastor. I, I hadn't lost my mind quite to that extent at that time. I sat and talked with an old friend of Dale's who had gone to Southeastern Bible College and then later to Dallas Theological Seminary. And he explained to me how Jesus' calling to, of these disciples and call to these disciples to come after me, to follow me, had nothing to do with becoming a Christian. 
That didn't exactly resonate in my heart, but I thought, okay, you got one of those seminary degrees or cemetery degrees or whatever they are. Again, in 1992, trying to impress a, another preacher, imagine that, with my theological depth and weightiness. He reaches back on his bookshelf and tosses a book towards me and says, go read that, this infamous book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And again, it articulated what I couldn't quite figure out. Why we saw people making decisions, why we saw people walking down aisles, when we saw people saying, I'm a believer, I, my, I am confident on the day that I die that I will step into eternity. And yet their lives look nothing like that. They have no interest in the things of God. Now one thing I never entertained was that an individual could gain salvation at one point in their life and lose it at the other. I didn't, that, that never really crossed my mind. I will say to you today, and I've said it many times, if you don't know why the Methodists believe that, you need to study your Bible and figure out why they do believe it, and you need to think about it. You need to think about it. It's a good exercise to think about. And then why do we believe that if the person who has been genuinely born again, been genuinely converted by the grace of God, why do we believe they are secure forever in the hand of God himself and no man may pluck that individual out of that hand? Why are we so passionate about that truth? But yet why is it we see those who very confidently and very glibly will tell you, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I know Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. And why do we find across churches of every stripe so little in the way of maturing disciples, maturing believers, fruitful believers? And I'm not going to be able to wrap this entire thing up in a nice, neat package for you today and put a bow on it. You're not going to walk out here today. Oh, I got that. Yep, I'm good. I got it. I understand it all. I've, you, you know, you, you just, you know, I'm glad you put it in a tidy package because we're going to see this issue over and over again. Because as I said, you know, one of the fundamental things or basic things of pieces of advice that we give to believers. Now, 45 years ago, 2019, same advice. New believer, go home and read the Gospel of John, right? And keep reading it. You know what I need to tell you all to do this week? Go read the Gospel of John. You know what I read? Now, you know I'm always marching to the beat of a different drummer. The story of my life. I mean, my dad thought I was the strangest dude that he had ever encountered, trust me. Never could figure me out. Imagine that. I read the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. Probably because somebody told me to read John. That would be good enough for me, right? But I began to see things that weren't discussed. I began to see Jesus say to individuals, you must 
Deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. That no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury the dead. And on and on it went. Not just one time. Telling a young man that seemed to be the absolutely most likely convert in Palestine. Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus begins to quiz him and finally zeroes in and says, go sell all you have, give it to the poor and what? Come follow me. What happened to that young man? Well, he chose not to live his best life then. And so here in the Gospel of John, we see this particular text that I preached on that Sunday so long ago. In verse 30, Jesus or John tells us, by way of comment, Jesus speaking, speaking of himself, speaking of the gospel, who he is, what he came to do. They believed him. Boom. So everything's all good, right? Everything's good because they believed in him. You need to be careful when you read your Bible because all belief is not created equal. There is a belief that does not result in eternal life. There is a belief that falls short of being the mark of the new birth. And Jesus goes on. If you read the, the whole section here, this entire story, but it comes down to verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the word of God. Now, that's not an audible voice. And folks, that's not the inner voice in your heart. The voice of God is given to us from Genesis to Revelation, and you love it. You hear the very voice of Almighty God revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ, when the Bible is read, when it is heard, when it is preached. And that voice of God resonates in you, it vibrates in you, it sets something aflame in you that previously, before you came to know Jesus Christ, was absolutely not present. And so, Jesus explains the reason, the re hear, hear this now, get this, the reason why you don't, do not hear the Word of God, the reason why you do not love the Word of God, the reason why so many members of Southern Baptist churches have something far more important to, than to be sitting in a place where the Word of God is rightly divided and proclaimed. Why do so many people choose to do what they want to do? Right? What do people do? They always do what they want to do. Why do they choose to not hear it? Because they're not of the people of God. They believe it at some level. There's, a, there's been people all through the course of history that have agreed. That's good stuff. That's right. That's true. That's beneficial. That's helpful. But they fall far short of having experienced what Jesus said was absolutely essential. You must be born again. And here's the whole, one of the things that holds all of this together. If you do not believe in sovereign, free grace, you will 
end up with a works-based salvation every time. You will wind up putting yourself and those you care about on some type of performance treadmill that will drive yourself crazy, and you'll drive them crazy and probably drive them out the doors of the church. You must understand grace. That when Jesus calls a man, when Jesus says, come after me, coming after him is not a work through which you earn salvation. It is the very testimony that you have been born of the Spirit of God. How do you know you're a child of God? You follow the Son of God. You love the Word of the Son of God. When the Word of God speaks, when the Son of God speaks through His Word, that makes your heart leap within you. That's how you know. That's how you know. That, that, that it is food to your very soul. Driving away from the Braves game the other night, I had a great idea. It was time to get some ice cream. And I knew where an exit was where there was a McDonald's. I ain't going to Wendy's. No, no, are we Wendy's or Burger King? Wendy's. I ain't going to Wendy's no more. Mm -mm. Long story, ask Jeff Dalton. The closer we got, the faster I went. I think I ran over two motorcycles, three pedestrians, and a baby carriage or two. They'll be fine. But the idea of that creamy, white, cool lump of deliciousness, oh, it was so enticing. I couldn't wait. How much more so? How much more so should we crave the very word of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because of what? We're trying to work our way in? Or because he's worked his way in? Because he's come. And he's knocked on that door. And the, 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 the person inside the door was dead. And he woke them from their death. And he gave to them life. And it is a life that loves to hear the word of Jesus. That begun in Genesis 1-1 and concluded in the book of Revelation. And so, does Jesus mean anything at all? Does it have any relevance, any application, any point of contact? As we read his words to these disciples, and not just the twelve, but individual after individual after individual, to come and follow after me. Can we be a disciple? Or can we be a believer and not be a disciple? Oh, I, I don't want to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ. I just want to be a fan. I, I, just want, I just want enough of this to get me out of hell. Well, honestly, salvation has never, ever worked that way. Jesus calls us to come 
and to die so that we may truly live. It would seem rather obvious for most of our church. If you really stand back and take a really good inventory and really evaluate the things on that inventory, there's not anything really that we can take hold of that's going to really last forever. As wonderful as family is, as wonderful as marriage is, guess what? One of us is left sobbing beside a grave. It always ends that way. And whatever else you find valuable, whether it's your retirement plan, your houses and cars and clothes, or whatever it is, we should know these things. That the only thing is of, that is ultimately of value is do you know Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord? If he's not your Lord, he's not your Savior. Uh-oh. Right row. He's not your Lord. And I, I guess maybe God gave me the dad he gave me because I needed to get accustomed to getting kicked in the seat of the pants. Or because, again, my dad was not a coddler. He was not gentle and nurturing. And I mean, he lit me up from time to time. Not that I ever needed that. I told somebody recently, among the many things I can say, he made me tough. Told, told pull search committee, I'll be the meanest person in the church. And I think every one of them would say amen to that. What I mean. That nobody's going to be out-tough me. Nobody's going to intimidate me. And, you know, my loving Heavenly Father has found many times, you know what he's got to do? He's got to light me up because I am a meathead sometimes spiritually. I know none of y'all have ever been that way. 45 years of trying to walk with Christ. Seasons in my life that nobody could have guessed in a million years that I knew Jesus Christ. Years I wish I could erase. I wish those chapters hadn't been written. I wish the chapters of suffering in my life hadn't been written. But they've all been written. And God has used every one of them to help me to understand Him, His Word, and how to attempt at least to bring it to bear upon the lives of those that he's entrusted to me as a shepherd. And so, let's look at this passage from Luke's Gospel. Again, we will see it time and time again. The concept of Jesus calling people to both salvation and to be his disciples. Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and they were washing their nets, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon. He asked him 
to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, both the boats so that they began to sink. And, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Pray with me. Father, how we thank you for your grace. We thank you for its effectiveness, its power demonstrated in our lives. Again, uh, the great grace through which we're saved and we stay saved and we will be saved until the day that we see you. I pray that that grace would continue its ever-deepening work in each of our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about this particular text, we're going to see that there are very ordinary men, very ordinary, common men, uneducated men, ill-informed men that Jesus calls to do an extraordinary work. They're called to do something that no one else has done. They're, they're called to be the men to which he will take uh, his, what, three years maybe, of earthly ministry, and he will instruct and he will teach and he will refine, he'll even define who these men are to be. And so we find Jesus in that early part of his ministry. We've talked about the fact that he is in Galilee north of Jerusalem. Here, Luke calls it the, the lake of Gennesaret, or Gennesaret, and we often speak of it as the Sea of Galilee. It's a freshwater lake, okay? One of the lowest lakes, if not the lowest lake, uh, in regards to sea level, okay? And so, Jesus is there. He is ministering. Again, Luke has spent four chapters kind of who is Jesus? Well, he's one that's been promised. He's one predicted by John the Baptist. He, he's, he's one that's going to be born of a virgin, was born of a virgin. He's this very precocious child who John the Baptist begins to speak of in these amazingly uh, revelatory ways as the one you've been looking for. And so he's beginning to have his life unpacked for the purpose of, of revealing God, wisdom, power, and salvation. We saw where even in his hometown, they go, who is this guy? And as he preached and as he ministered and as he did these things that were so impressive, these miracles, 
crowds began to take note. Now, I want to say just a, a word here that a crowd means very little in and of itself. I went and helped with a, a ministry in Atlanta yesterday. And um, it's called Hope Through Soap. And it is a ministry to the, to the homeless. And they have a couple of trailers. One of them has portable shower stalls. And one of them is kind of a supply trailer in which um, uh, there's clothing that they can come and they can receive clean clothes and a toiletry kit and go to the next place and take a shower. Uh, there's even a barber there that will cut their hair. And they're, they're fed. They're given a meal. Uh, obviously, no charge. And very, very interesting. Not not really gospel-oriented, as I talked to the leader. Very, very interesting uh, discussion. But that ministry is well-known enough that with really no advertising and no effort, they pull into a vacant lot, they turn the music on, they put the meat on the grill, and between the noise and the smoke, people come out. And they stand in line for even hours to receive this, okay? There is, again, for the most part, I just took a stack of Bibles, and the guy said, well, you can give them if, out if they want them, and several people asked for them. Uh, but at any rate, they drew a crowd. Why? Because a need was being met. Uh, sometimes crowds are good things in that there are those that have faithfully proclaimed the word of God and God has raised up gigantic churches around them because people are hungry to hear the truth. And then there are churches in which there will be untold thousands of people gathered today and there will be very little said that has anything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They come for as many reasons as there are people in the pulpit or people in the pews. But Jesus attracted a diverse crowd. And when we see crowd in the Gospels, don't think it means everybody was loving Jesus and believing in him and those people are in heaven. It means they heard about this miracle worker and they were sick. They heard about this guy that was feeding people and they were hungry. They heard about this guy that, hey, I don't know who he is, but golly, bum, what a show. All kinds of reasons. So the crowds were coming, and the crowd was so large that they were crowding Jesus into the lake. Now, one of, my early, one of the earlier childhood memories that I have, and my childhood is getting longer and longer, further and further back, you know. I don't know if any of y'all have that problem. But the first summer camp I attended was Camp Poplar Springs, about, about 10 miles down Highway 100, uh, in beautiful Somerville, Georgia, Tatuga County, Georgia, almost to the Floyd County line. And the local Baptist Association bought, I don't know how many acres, 50 or 100 acres, and they built a camp. Spent thousands of dollars over there over 10 or 20 years having this camp, building cabins and so forth and so on. But one night we went out to a little pond, and there was a boat there, and they pushed the preacher out in the boat. Now, I was hoping they'd just keep on pushing him. 
or maybe maybe we're going to throw rocks at the boat. Or you know, I mean, I'm thinking this is going to be this. this I'm, I'm in on this. But in the manner that Jesus did here, he spoke from the boat. I I call it what a an unusual pulpit. And any pulpit will do, won't it? Any pulpit will do. And so Jesus, as a practical matter, he's being pushed. There's so many people coming. They want to hear him. They want to see him. They want him to deliver them from whatever is afflicting them. And they push him to where he's got no room. And so just as a practical matter, he says, well, I need a little bit of space. You know, if, if we were a packed house, and I wish we were, but if we were a packed house and people were right here and I got right here to speak to them, that would be difficult. You, you need a little bit of a separation. And so Jesus allowed himself to be pushed out uh, into the water. And I can remember as a kid, we had a place on Lake Weiss. Any of you that ever go to a lake, you need to know that anything you say may and will be amplified across the water to people that you don't know hearing what you may not want them to hear. Just thought I'd throw that in. But water has a way of naturally amplifying sound. Pretty smart, huh? But, you know, a guy that's omniscient probably knew that. He, he's the one that installed that particular acoustical principle in nature. Because what? He created all things by the power of his word, and he's still upholding them. Right? Okay. So they push him out. He uses the fishing boat, and th there's actually a fishing, at least one of these boats that they think was used by the Galilean fishermen uh, in a museum in uh, Israel. And they're about 25 feet long, seven or eight feet wide, kind of flat bottom boats, uh, no, no overpiece or anything like that. Some of them might have had a mast. Some of them had places for oars. But this was probably the type boat that Jesus was pushed out in. It was rather a, a rather substantial boat, okay? So he's pushed out, and he preaches from this boat. Because more than anything else, Jesus Christ was a preacher. He was a preacher. He came to proclaim God's truth. And so these people hear the words of Jesus as he proclaims it to them. And then as he completes this, it's interesting. doesn't say much about how the crowds responded, does it? Just when he finished, he says to Simon, who happened to be the owner of the boat, let's go fishing. Let's go fishing. Now, Simon being a fisherman, and, and at least the normative thing for, for commercial fishermen in that day was to fish at night. For whatever the reasons were, they fished at night. So Simon listens to the words of Jesus, and, but, he, but he objects. Notice there in verse 5, we've been doing this all night. And if you can imagine... These are very large nets, and I'm not a big reality TV show guy, but I do like you know that some of those fishing, you know the tuna thing and the uh, what is it, dangerous catch. Those are pretty interesting. But 
pulling a wet, heavy net in. They, they were probably exhausted and frustrated. I, I'm, I'm not that much of a fisherman, but you fishermen, to fish for all day and not catch anything, uh, you're ready to sell the boat, throw the rods in the river, go home, watch TV. But Jesus tells him to do this. He does it, and then there in verse 6, what? They catch a lot of fish. Now, I don't know if Jesus chose to put those fish there or if he just knew they were there. doesn't matter. Either way. But they, 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 they have this huge, overwhelming catch. And it, there's so many that they call the second boat out, which evidently belonged to uh, uh, James and John. So they come out, and guess what? They've got so many fish, the, fish begin, the boat begins to sink. Now, if these boats are 26 by 7 or whatever, I imagine they could float a lot of weight. I would think. I don't, I don't know that. But that's a lot of fish. And so the boat begins to, to sink because they have caught so many fish. Okay? And look at verse 8. Simon Peter shook up because he, he begins to understand. Now, Evidently, this is not the first encounter they've had with this Galilean carpenter. John had pointed him out, the, uh, the John the Baptist. They had already attached himself to John the Baptist. And so they're probably thinking, this is, hey, this is an intriguing guy. We've hung out with him some. We kind of understand what he's about. This guy, this carpenter who should know nothing about fishing, we're the experts. He tells us where to fish. We fish. We've got a catch like we've never had before in our life. And through that, Simon Peter, for lack of a better term, he has a revelation. And what he says in regards to that, verse 8, he falls down on his knees, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Leave. The, the weight of the glorious holiness, love, mercy, power, all of the attributes of God are in bodily form there incarnate in Jesus Christ. We often speak of Isaiah 6. I've told you that's a big paradigm for me. From conviction and contrition to consolation and comfort. So, all of who Jesus is makes Simon realize who he's not or who he is. He realizes Jesus alone is holy and he is not. That at the end of the day, this good Jew boy, this guy that's presumably a religious guy, recognizes what? I'm a sinner. How many times have we said, if there's going to be evangelism, if there's going to be a conversion take place, there must be, first and foremost, the recognition that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Savior's name is Jesus Christ. Okay? There's got to, there, there's got to be some things in place. 
If you're not a sinner, you don't need a Savior. If you're not lost, you don't need to be found. If you're not dead, you don't need to be raised. All of those things. So Peter recognizes this. And there's, I think, a genuine repentance that leads to life, to rejoicing. Now, I don't know. One of the things that I've always, I don't know when the disciples were saved. You ever thought about that? I saw a couple of kind of, yeah. But, I, you know, and, it, and, it, and it's our paradigm of the, la, of the last hundred years in the church. Well, when did they come down the aisle on the third verse of Just As I Am and sign that card? If they didn't do that, they can't really be a Christian, can they? There's nothing really wrong with doing it. That, you know, I'm not, but I'm just saying, I don't know. I can't, t- I don't have a clue. But what I know is this. That ultimately, probably even before this point, and until the day they saw Jesus, God marked them with His powerful grace. And He began a good work in them, and He was completing it through the balance of their life until the day they saw Jesus Christ in glory. That, that, that the result of this encounter with Jesus Christ was repentance and faith that the result of being born again was they were converted. That the result of having this indelible marking of God's grace upon their life was that they followed after Jesus Christ. They didn't earn their salvation by following Jesus. They followed Jesus because God gave them salvation as a free gift secured and procured by Jesus on the cross at Calvary. And if you get it out of order, you will be messed up. You will be wrecked and ruined. Your faith will be a shipwreck if you get those things out of order. And so, Jesus, or Peter, encounters Jesus Christ. And what do we know? That there was an unreserved response of obedience. That Jesus says, because I'm, I'm your Lord, you're going to acknowledge me as your Lord I've got a new assignment for you. You're probably at least a semi-prosperous business owner. You own your boats. It wasn't a bad living in Palestine at that time. And Jesus says to them, your vocation is no longer catching fish. Your vocation is now going to be the catching of men, not by nets of force, but by the power of my gospel. And so I'm reassigning you for the course of your life. And Peter, like every single one of us, his life wasn't this skyrocket of spirituality that took off and never veered and, and, and just was perpetually upward. Peter messed up a few times, didn't he? Now, I know none of y'all have. I, I know y'all don't understand messing up. But let me tell you as one who has and does, and will. We mess up. Yeah. And God, by His His grace, forgives us. So, he encounters Jesus. Jesus reassigns him and calls him, yes, indeed, to a unique place. Ultimately, really, to be the leader of those 12 men. But, we need to understand that this is a paradigm. And we'll see it 
like I say, I'm not going to be able to tie this up in a neat little bow for you today. But you need to understand that the gospel call, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the free gift of salvation is a salvation that is given to us to do the good works that he has ordained in advance for us to do. To follow after him. To, to follow him. And Jesus was explicit. You have died to an old way and you're alive to a new way. And so Peter and this apostolic band, as we're going to see again and again, they follow him. And as, as John MacArthur notes in the Gospel according to Jesus, I'm not the only cynic and smart aleck in the world, just so y'all know, okay? But MacArthur says that Jesus Christ would have failed every evangelism course in every, every seminary that he was aware of. Why? Because he didn't water it down and sugarcoat it and make all kinds of promises. He said what? Come after me. Come after me. Follow me. I am the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will receive me as nothing and no one less than that. And so I'm going to challenge them. And I, I hope I get a few phone calls and emails. When can I see you, Brother Tim? I want to think about this. This is hard. You know what? You know why it's hard? It's hard. Did y'all hear that? That was very profound. You know why it's hard? It's hard. I got tickled this week. I went to start my first guitar lesson. I'm, I've already bought my skinny jeans, and I've, I've, I'm, I've got a plaid flannel shirt, and Daniel, I'm going to need some whiskers, okay, if that's okay, brother. And I mean, I'm going to be bombing it before long. And I told Tammy this morning, she's got to be the most gracious lady I've ever, I had picked on her for 16 years. And I, I mean, I think she thought I was having an epileptic, epileptic seizure there trying to play that silly guitar. I have 10 thumbs and two left feet for hands and no rhythm. It makes it hard to play guitar. But she made a comment. She said, you know, you know why your mu musicians, when they're playing in front of you at church, don't smile? It's hard. It's hard. I mean, I can't, I can't, I can't even, however you do, stand up and do that for folks, Tammy. I can't do it. It's hard. It is a hard tension to hold biblically. But until you do, I think you will be restless and wandering until these things resonate in your soul. So stick with me as we unpack these things over the weeks and Sunday ahead. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your tremendous grace. It is a grace that transforms us from people who do not follow you to people who do. And Lord, may you continue that work. May we have clarity as to where you would take us and how you would have us serve. It's our heart's desire is simply to make more and better disciples. For the sake of your name, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.